Welcome back to Real Talk, everyone. I'm KC, and today I am delighted to have a guest co-host with me today for an episode that she has been advocating for for quite, I, I believe we could say plural, years. Cindy Cardozo, part of the Real Talk team, welcome. Thank you. To the front of the house. Yeah. Yeah, Cindy is the one behind the scenes making sure things happen, and she's been here as long as I have. And if you're a longtime listener, you would have heard Cindy back in season two, I think maybe also in season four. No, all season two. Yeah, season two. Oh, I've, I've been at the university for two years, and I am very excited about this uh, episode because, as I have mentioned before, I'm been theater adjacent practically all of my life, uh, starting with dance as a child and as a parent advocating for my kids to be in theater, very involved in local community theater in Fairfield. I just love theater and I I love what it does for the world and its use as a teaching instrument as well as opening doors and opening minds for people all over the world. And if if you've talked to Cindy more than once, you you already know this about her because there is a way that theater is related to, or there's an example from theater maybe that is that comes into play no matter what you're talking about. It's true. It's a game. It's a yeah. game that I play with my kids. There's a song for that. Yes, 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 yes. And and frankly, Cindy is in my trans studies graduate class right now and writing a, a seminar paper on theater. So I, you know, I am someone who is, I wouldn't call myself theater adjacent, but I'm certainly an advocate of the arts. We've been doing a, a lot of focus on the last couple of seasons on the arts and, and how important they are in terms of activism, social change, really moving people. So today we've got three guests with us to talk about the role of, of theater, performing arts, social change. And I'm delighted to have this conversation, especially with you, Cindy, um, as somebody who you could say adjacent, but with more, much more expertise and experience than I have. So anyway, I have more experience perhaps behind the or in front of the mic, um, but you have a lot more experience topically today. So delighted to have you here for this conversation. So our three guests today, we've got Michael Skinner, uh, who's an associate professor here at Southern Connecticut State University and chair of the theater department. Um, doing all kinds of great, any performance I've seen here has been fantastic. We're delighted to have you. Um, we've also got Rebecca Goodhart from Elm City Shakespeare, who is the producing artistic director. Also, Elm Shakespeare is the theater in residence here at SCSU. And she's been doing uh, acting, directing, teaching in Shakespeare and voice for 25 years and is also adjuncting here. Delighted to have you. And then finally, Rachel Alderman from Long Wharf Theater, associate artistic director, and Long Wharf is a Tony Award-winning theater founded in 1965. I saw right before the pandemic, and I think it was 2020, I Am My Own Wife, that performance, and was really impressed and blown away. So at this particular moment in time, we are excited to, to talk about both the challenges and the possibilities in performing arts. So Cindy, you want to you wanna take it away? Sure. I, I, I've always thought that the arts are something that survives civilizations. It's very important in learning community and building community with audience members, with the people on the stage, 
And it's always been important for historical reasons, for pointing out what's good and what's bad in society and doing it in a way that entertains as well as informs. So I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the history of theater and how it's an agent for social change. Well, Mike well, teaches I, I history was just theater. Yeah, I teach our theater history classes, so I'm all over this one. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me here. I mean, I teach, uh, especially, you know, in the, in the 20th century. I mean, it goes back, obviously, before that. But how theater can topple governments, how theater can be used to, to change society, and how governments actually have responded to theater in ways of, of regulation and, you know, uh, sponsoring, but only sponsoring what they want to sponsor right. for topics. Uh, censorship is a huge thing that comes in from regulation standpoints throughout history. But also, I mean, just people in general... Um, need it. I teach it actually from from the beginning of time. You know, in order to have a civilization, you, the the requirements I believe are agriculture, and I also put in there. You know, religion and theater are the other two objects that yeah. have been in every society since the dawn of time. Right, and picture making. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious some of those examples about around censorship when governments have been really threatened by works of performing arts. I mean, uh, I can go right to Shakespeare's time. Yeah. Say, yeah. Queen, Queen Elizabeth actually had uh, rules stating that no religion could be uh, addressed in any theatrical performance huh. because she was sponsoring the theaters. And there was actually, uh, I forget the name of it, but there was a law stating that everything had to be approved by a government official before it could be presented to the public. Huh. Well, and... There was half of Shakespeare's company was jailed for about six months because they had the temerity to perform Richard II the eve before there was a coup attempt. And so the fact that they depicted a play that showed uh, the taking away of royalty from Richard was enough to get them all in a lot of trouble. So, you know, you can't, you can't say the words God or Lord, or cause that was um, being a heretic, just like Mike said, but it was also, you can't show a king or queen being deposed. And the fact that it was interesting because the, the people that were starting the coup actually commissioned the company to do Richard II at their estate with that scene the Mm. night before they attempted treason. Mm. And so they were part of it. (laughs) That is so interesting. And you know what, when you're teaching, and then uh, Rachel, we want to hear from you in a second, but does that get students excited, that sort of revolutionary examples I think so. And I also, we tie it to today as well. I mean, yeah, there sure. are still things going on today. I mean, just a few years ago with uh, uh, the public, with the Shakespeare in the Park doing Julius Caesar and deciding to costume the character of Caesar like Trump. Oh, um, interesting. And there were protests during the show that actually stopped, brought the show to a halt while the protesters were removed. And one of the greatest things, tales to the story is that the stage manager was able to say, let's pick it up from liberty and freedom. <laughs> being the line that they were going right. to pick the show up from. So wow. it, I think the students are interested right. and they, they can get excited by it. Yeah, it's a real live experience also. But I think anytime, you know, they're, they're, I see this in, in my own teaching that sometimes like stuff that is old, Shakespeare's old <laughs> and also not. But sometimes that, that like the sense of, oh, this was something that somebody doesn't want me to do or this has that power. And I'm curious about that that power um, when it's translated into into today. I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear what Rachel thinks. 
what it's bringing up for me is thinking of all the ways that we at in the theater industry today lean into and are trying to be brave in civic discourse. We don't shy away from discomfort because that is our job to sit in it and to engage with it with our audiences. And so the power of that is that we are fearless when we invite people to come together in community to watch something that is maybe brings up many different feelings, whether they're intimate feelings of discomfort or civic large-scale conversations around policy. And I remember when, after Trump was elected, there was a lot of discussion about whether you could even have diversity, equity, and inclusion work at your institution. Were they going to come down hard on on organizations that even even engaged in that work? And, and that is the work of theater, <laughs> to... Mm-hmm bring multiple voices, the many voices of, as Jacob Padron, our artistic director, always says, the kaleidoscopic communities that we engage in. Our job is to represent our communities in all of their voices, in all of their ways. And in order to do that, you have to step into conversations that may be unfamiliar and uncomfortable and recognize the humanity in other people in your community. And that is where it gets tricky for people in power when they want to ignore certain voices or limit certain involvements. So our job is literally to step into those places with our art. And that is what we do every time we plan a season, every time we, every time we put something out for public consumption. There's a really interesting historical connection with that, that has to do with the duality of theater, right? Because you are in real time and real space. It is me speaking to you, the audience is all together. And at the same time, it is by nature allegorical. You are both the actor and the character. And that duality, mm. so that you are speaking, but you're also telling a story. Mm. And there is a there's plausible deniability sometimes in that that oh, has sure. created safety that has allowed really revolutionary. I'm thinking particularly in Brazil and in actually in several South American countries that theater has become a voice of the resistance. And this has happened throughout history, but they can say, we're just telling a story. Right. This is I'm an old timey fairy tale. Yeah. But what we're saying right, is right. absolutely, and everybody in the audience knows. So it becomes a voice for now, but it can sometimes be allowed and get around oppressive forces because of this duality of we're just telling a story. Mm. We didn't actually say Trump. He just happens to be dressed exactly like right. that or whatever the production is. I'd be curious thinking about theater as allegorical, but also that live experience. I wonder what would you all say? Because, you know, resistance shows up in, in literature, poetry, comics, I'll say, but it's very different experience to be reading a book, you know, alone versus going to theater. So I'm curious. I'd, I'd love to hear from you all about the difference between the performing arts specifically and then other forms of, of arts. Well, uh, putting my voice teacher hat on, um, that it's one of the things that we talk with the students, that our job, literally emotion is electrical energy. Mm. And so it courses through your body and you actually uh, let it come out and pass through or it gets stored as tension, Mm. right? That's, That's just 
physiology. And what's interesting is so that my vibrations on my voice, that is where that energy goes, comes out and literally lodges mm. onto the bodies of the people live sitting there with me in the audience. And they've done fascinating studies that the heartbeat and breath of the audience syncs up I with the actors. That. Yeah. So that is something that can happen that doesn't happen in, well, maybe live music, right. perhaps, or but no other live art right. form. You know, you don't sync up with the author's breath. Yeah. Although yeah. I suppose you could have an argument that maybe you do if you're following a syntax, maybe, depending maybe. on how you read. But the idea that we are in the same room, having the same experience, and that I love what Rachel said is that it's our job to stand up and be fearless, mm. that, that we as actors are literally conduits for these large stories, for this large energy to pass through us and vibrate through our bodies mm -hmm. into real time and space and physically affect the people that are in the same room. So we all have a shared experience. Right. That's why I love theater because nothing else does that. I don't think. Totally agree with you. I'll give you a real time experience that, that is just happening right now. We're producing the year of magical thinking with Kathleen Chalfant and one of the amazing things about this model that we're doing is that we're going into people's living rooms and Kathy sits in the room as Joan Didion and can look into people's eyes because yesterday we were in a home in Fairhaven with 18 people. Mm. And due to the, the composition of the room, the experience of the people, the light of the room, the energy of those people, her performance is so in tune with whoever is in that room, what they're going through. She's looking in their eyes. She's feeling their energy. She's experiencing the breath of the collective of the room. Before we did the show, I listened to the audible version of the book with Vanessa Redgrave, and I was blown away. It's a beautiful experience. It was me in my car with Vanessa Redgrave on audible, mm -hmm. but Vanessa Redgrave's performance doesn't change based on my the rhythms of my heartbeat in that right. moment. I'm sitting in my car alone. I am having an intimate experience listening to Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, and I'm very moved, but it is solo. When I am sitting in a room with Kathleen Chalfant, whether it was we did it at Southern Connecticut State University the other day at Bewley Library, we were in the basement of the library next to the piano. We had 50 people in that room. It was a totally different experience than the show yesterday in Fairhaven with the 18 people because of the low ceilings, because of the nature of the warm lighting in the library, because of where Kathleen was that day, because of where the people were coming to experience this show for the first time in the library, which was unexpected, which was new. So it could not have been the same day to day. It has to be unique and has to be in relationship because there's no way around that, as opposed to just me with Vanessa in my car. You know, me and Vanessa, we're on a first name basis, yeah. but she didn't experience me in my right. car. Only I did. I was hoping that you would talk about these. I don't know. Do you call them home shows? Yeah, they're, we've been calling them home venues and gathering spaces. Yeah. And the venues are anywhere from, you know, 14 to 20 people, depending on the configuration of the of the living room of the homeowner. And then the community, more community oriented spaces can at max have about 50 or so people, which is still very intimate as opposed to the Lyman <laughs> with 1600 seats or something like that. It's right. just a very different, different and, experience. 
purposefully. Part of what I've done is is I've worked with Fairfield Center Stage, and they do what they call environmental theater. Uh. One of my favorites was when they did The Secret Garden at the Pequot Library. So for the uh, beginning of the show, for the first act, we were in the library. And then once the garden appeared, the second act, we were outside in the gardens of the library. And the energy just from the change of venue was amazing that, you know, you feel the growth of this garden and you experience the, the joy of the children outside. And I think that's incredible. I, I love the idea of environmental theater. I've seen cabaret in gay bars. I've seen Rocky Horror Picture Show in, in bars. And it's amazing just that the difference between using a large theater versus an intimate venue. Yeah, I mean, I'll yeah. chime in just uh, with our small uh, drama lab space, our black box. Every time we do a show in there, we have to we have the conversation of how do we want to arrange the audience uh-huh. because that affects the relationship between the performers and the audience. You know, in the round is going to be a lot different than a proscenium uh, frame. Just the feeling in the room with all right. these energies going around, and sometimes we want the audience to look at, feel uncomfortable, uh-huh. and see the audience on the other side of the room also feeling uncomfortable. Right. Right. The, the, it's like original practices where you can see the audience. The lights, are, yeah. the lights are on. It is that idea of space and sharing energy and sharing space, whether that be 15 people, and that's a, that's a particular kind of community, or whether it's a, in the round, in the black box, or in a, in a park. I think it's one of the reasons I keep coming back to that free outdoor Shakespeare model. Mm-hmm. The thing that's interesting is when you get... So Elm Shakespeare in Edgerton Park, we'll have, it's the opposite. We have 800 to 1,500 people mm-hmm. in the audience. And what happens there is actually a different balance and a different energy sharing. Yes, there is the performance, and that is something that's a dialogue, but you're equally aware of the people you're sitting next to. So mm-hmm. it becomes not what I would say, not just vertical, but also a horizontal uh, sure. energy sharing, which means that there is a different perception of the community coming together to share in this experience. And I think that it's something that happens in Europe, I think, a lot more than than in America. The idea that theater is the beginning of the evening, right? And so I was really interested in Berlin. Every theater have these restaurants and bars, and it's not just the audience, it's the performers and the directors, and everybody sits down hmm. and has dinner and chews on the play mm-hmm. for, for several hours, and I think sometimes... We go to bed th- too early in America. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. everyone's like, I'm asleep, but I yeah. do, I would like to think that maybe that some of that is possible oh, in yeah. the park. There have been times when, you know, we're closing down the park, and there's a party mm. that, you know, 20 people with their blankets and their picnics, and they are just talking, and go, and it's like, alright, we'll, we'll hang out, we'll come and and stay so this idea that that theater serves community in both the vertical and the horizontal that that it is as important who you're seeing it with as much as it is what you're seeing Mm. i think that it it goes both ways it's an important thing and just the experience of going to elm in the park it's so intergenerational yes yeah there's that added component of the dimensionality of community sitting together feasting, watching, laughing, and and also coming early, like you were saying, getting there as early as you can, staying as late as you can. It becomes this beautiful ritual that 
that can only happen right when we're together, when mm. we're live. We can only affect each other that way if we're gathering like that. Mm. Yeah. We went to see uh, Hamlet maybe 2018, 2019. Oh, yeah. No, that would have been, yeah, early, like maybe 2014. Anyway, uh-huh. it doesn't matter, but yeah. But in the, just in the, in the park and then just having that communal experience of like the sun is going down. You yeah. know, and, and that sort of feeling of, of kind of the lights are coming up, the sun is going down. And then also there's some kids running around screaming and, you know, like you're, you're out in the, in the world. And that is a very different experience than sitting in the, in the black box theater where you do yes. feel much more implicated, I think, in terms of the, the actors on, on stage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you're, you you can't escape it. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah. You can't even look away because no. they're so close to you. Yes, yes, yeah. And I love both of those formats. And also just a traditional kind of theater setup, but really like the, or a home. Um, I've seen like home concerts, uh, which is also incredible. But I imagine for actors, all of those different settings are remarkably different in terms of their their practice and their experience. I wonder if you all could speak to that. To a certain extent, I guess, though, a little bit, your art is the same. You're recalibrating for space and and energy and dimension of the distance of space. If you're you're just kind of recalibrating your instrument, not so much Mm. redoing your your whole practice. But we'd love to hear you. You both talk to that, too. How much do you feed off the energy of the audience? You know, I've had friends who are actors say that, you know, the audience was dead and they didn't get the laughs when they were supposed to. They didn't get the, you know, the claps when they were supposed to. How much of that affects the actors and their performances? I mean, I would say it, it affects it a lot, but it's also, I mean, it's their their job to keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that, that's the yeah. profession, so they have to do it. But I, I, I'm a negative side. It could really bring you down and make you have to work a little bit harder. But when the audience's energy is with you, I mean, you feel it and, and they're with you and you're with them and it, it enhances it, I think. That's like teaching. Yeah, you know, yeah, very much. You start with you start with what is so. I mean, I have a little, right. I have a little sign next to my desk that says, "Show up, tell the truth, let go of the outcomes." Right, mm-hmm. and I and I do think that when you're rehearsing, I like to think of rehearsing as setting up guideposts. We know the direction we're going, and there are things that I there are things that are are non negotiable. The lights will come up here. It will be timed this way. There is a sword fight. There is safety. But, and we know the story we want to tell. But the really brilliant actors, it's you start and then you listen. And you're listening to your fellow actors. You're listening to what's resonating in your heart, right? I love, like, a Friday night audience is, Friday night audiences are chaotic, right? Because everyone's, it's the end of the week. But everybody's also still resonating with work. Interesting. And there's like, and oftentimes there's been traffic yeah. and whatever. And, and you've already done, you're going into your fifth show of the week. And so there's like a, you got to get over that hump together to get into the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus a Sunday, you're exhausted. You've done eight shows a week, mm-hmm. right? So at the end of Sunday, and you've got people that are like, oh, they went to brunch. Oh, for sure and, they did. <laughs> it, you know, so it's your job to like, let's go. Yeah. Do you know? So absolutely the audience. But at the end of the day, it's your job to say, hey, we're going to go on this ride mm. together. Let's all go. So. Mm. I imagine it's different, though, for improv, too, like a sure. comedia and stuff like that, where you don't have a, a script. You have the idea or the storyline, and then how you get there is up to you in the moment. 
that is directly uh, going to be affected by the energy from the audience. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And yet, I mean, I think that is the, and that's the art form too, isn't it? And there's, a, there's an interesting conversation about when art becomes product. And yeah. if I've spent $600 for a ticket or whatever exorbitant right. amount and I'm going, I expect to see that performance, right? So it can't shift. So your job is actually to do the same thing every night, but have it be listening to the audience and have it be true and have it be in that moment. You know, it's, yeah. it looks like it's the same thing, but it, it actually, that's where the, the art comes into it. Right. Very interesting. And that, yeah, I I just really, I resonate with what you're saying as a teacher, because, you know, sometimes you have a class and a lot of times depends on the time and space and the particular mix of people in the room. And sometimes it it requires a different performance of the teacher. So yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that connection (laughs) and their expectations as well. Well, And everything you've experienced that week going before. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then finding audience members that help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's the guy in the fourth row that's laughing. He's with you. Me. Know, I got it. I can work with that. <laughs> so funny. Can you talk a little bit about the value of the arts education for young children and young adults? Only all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, for me, yeah, I mean, it's, there's some great, uh, I get a lot of my quotes from, from the social medias these days, but it says, you know, arts education is actually, it's teaching empathy. It's teaching students to be better humans. We're not looking for every student of mine to be the next famous actor or the next famous designer or director, but it's opening up a world to them that is not always in the forefront and it's different perspectives. Theater should not be a silo of the same character every time. I mean, it's a world experience that differs in every town, every theater, every place. So I, you know, arts education to me is probably more important than, you know, a lot of the STEM things that we have going on. I know. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It heightens your senses, right? If you're teaching theater and theater literacy, you're, you're effectively teaching people to live in a, in a world where they are fully present with a really heightened sense of a sensory experience of all of their senses so that they are exceptional listeners and exceptional feelers and through theater and theater and kind of the art of theater literacy and becoming an excellent observer, right? You are training people to be fully human and then better humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it goes into every field. If we had arts education, theater education, in everywhere, you, the baseline for, I feel, I'm preaching, but the baseline of humanity would be lifted because it just it applies to everything, right? It just that kind of direct, uh, those skills of, of direct address, of listening, of being fully present with your fellow human beings, take that into any boardroom, take that into any doctor's office, take that into any bank, you know, the whole world would be a little a little bit more human in my opinion. Yeah. The, I did know someone in, in Madison, Wisconsin who used um, theater to help scientists tell stories about their research who are notoriously bad at, at doing so, but how to really connect with what is the story I'm telling through this research? And then how do I communicate that out both, you know, like speaking. So in that performative aspect, but really how do you tell a story? Um, Because a lot of times people who are tracked into STEM, for example, don't learn about 
or don't spend a lot of time or don't don't think it's perhaps important to know how to communicate, be with other people, empathy, all of those things. You know, the thing is about theater education, I think there's a useful distinction to make between education programs, training programs, right? Education is building a better human and maybe some really great theater results, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's using theater to do so. Theater training is building a better actor or a better designer, or Mm -hmm. the goal is on, on the art. And so, Elm, we've got, we do both, but in our education programs, the thing that that I think is so important is that theater education programs are not one thing, right? You know, we we say it's humanity, but if you really want to, if we break it down, it is socio-emotional learning. It is linear logical because there is a sequence. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. It is language arts and vocabulary and complex thoughts and rhetorical Mm. structures. And they've done fascinating studies that show if you can share complex, poetic, dramatic poetry, it actually creates new neural pathways in your brain. And you are more likely to be able to construct a complex argument mm. using those neural pathways for having done it. So it's, right. it's that it's teamwork, it's executive function, it's bravery. It hits all of the things, which is why we, I think we say humanity because it demands the most of us in real time. It's right. not talking about it, it's doing it. So I, I think there's no, you know, obviously preaching to the choir just a little bit, but, um, but you know, the, this, the fact that if what it does for our kids, and it, if I try on a, somebody who's different than me, then maybe next time I meet someone who's different than me, I, you know, I walk in yeah. their shoes a little better, which is that empathy thing that Mike was saying so articulately. Yeah, it's the foundation of our democracy, what you just yeah. said. <laughs> that right. point, that's it. Like, if you have people that can do that, then you can have complex, nuanced conversations and civic discourse lifts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even at the, the academic level, I mean, there, there's a reason it's the arts and sciences right. together. Um, and I think it was Einstein who said that you could be the smartest scientist in the world. But without the imagination of an artist, yeah. progress will never happen. You'll never right. be able to discover anything new. Right. You'll be a technician. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, have, yeah. A, I have a, a, a dear friend, uh, Lisa Daly, who's a, a theater artist and a teacher. And she always starts off her post show. She, every show with with students, she has a post that when they're in the show, she has a post show conversation so that the parents can really see what the children are actually mm. learning from the process, right? No matter mm. how old they are. She does it with first graders. She does it with third graders. She always has a post-show conversation where she can dig into the with the kids about their experience. And she always says, what are some life skills that you've learned from this process of creating this play? And the kids really, really can lift up things that they've taken away, which then demonstrates to the to the whole parent body, you right. know, why this actually is essential to, to their core education. I mean, that's what we're talking about, but it can be done on all levels, right? It can be done mm. in the elementary level all the way up through any age, actually. But right. I, I'm struck by uh, thought when, you know, in arts, you know, we're always raising money to make all these things happen. And, right. and, Measurable outcomes is the the watchword, and when we're talking about you know, what are the measurable outcomes or the yes. measurable outcomes, we had a conversation at the Shakespeare Theater Association, and and one of my 
dear colleagues, Patrick Mulcahy, who is the uh, artistic director at Pennsylvania Shakespeare, or he was until very recently, he got outraged and he shook his fist and he said, show me a soul and I'll show you how I changed it. <laughs> but I do, like in some ways, I know, you I know, know. it is measurable, but it is also fuzzy. Intangible it's hard, to, in some ways. It's hard yeah. to say, what is it that we do? You know, what is it that theater brings is sometimes the things that are un- intangible mm-hmm. that are the most important. Well, I can tell you that listening, well, I guess participating in this conversation and listening to it makes me think that, that, Theater, in many ways, is the antidote to passive scrolling on social media, hours and hours spent, you know, in not engaging in, in very human ways of being via screens and how different it is to spend time with people. Just And, not, and also not just that we've been talking, I guess, more about the performance and a little bit less about the process of getting there. Because I often think I, we have many students in communication who are also in, in in theater and it, I often think oh my gosh you've been working so long and so hard and then there's only three performances but really that's just that's maybe a, not the right way to think about it so maybe let's talk about like the we've talked a lot also about the both performance and the audience but about the process of getting there for the cast and crew it's definitely a journey I mean and I think that you know having it you can't think of it as being a short run or only, only three days and you're yeah. done but that's part of the catharsis, I think, of going through the whole process is being able to create these characters, create this world, tell the story, share it with others, and then be able to put it on a shelf or put it away and take the lessons, as we just said, with you to the next performance and the next show that you're going to work on. Um, there's something cyclical about that. Right. And the great thing about, I think, storytelling is that even if you are telling Julius Caesar or whatever for the, for the 13th time, you've never told it the same way twice. Mm-hmm. Mm. The idea that it is ephemeral. And that, that is a lesson in and of itself. Right. You know? But I will say, I think when you, my, my reaction was that the long and hard, you said they've worked so long and hard. That's actually the point in yeah. many ways. Like, that's the thing. That is I the mean, thing, yeah. I mean, we're getting ready, uh, you know, December 9th, Elmo Havitz. It's our second. We did it once during the pandemic. A youth Shakespeare Festival. And so we'll have almost 100 kids coming together from four, doing four shows from four different organizations. And there's nothing better than seeing, you were talking about the the, the scrolling. There's nothing better than seeing a group full of teenagers cheering for each other. Right. Because they've walked this same path. They've all done the, what you call the, the work so long and hard. Mm -hmm. And so they have, you know, they've got their brethren Mm -hmm. and we specifically set it up so that it's not a competition. It's a celebration because kids compete all the time, time. right? They got that. We don't, you need another competition and that the arts are celebrated. It's a yes. And, and so I think it is the anecdote to the isolation of your phones mm-hmm. and of your screens. And part of how we get to the festival is that we have these master classes where we we work to bring all 100 kids together again and again and again so that there is a larger sense of community. So there's myself, there's the play, there's the cast, there's my school. Oh, I belong to New Haven. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a larger connection. And so... Yeah, I kind of think that's the point. I right. don't know. I'd love to hear right. Rachel. Like the what performance you think? is the stakes, yeah. baby. Yeah. Rebecca, you made me think that one of the fastest ways to build bonds and create community is through theater. Amen. You know, 
Yeah, you you can go to a lecture and never meet who you're sitting next to. You can go to all sorts of events or even conferences and never quite create a bonded group of people working towards a common goal. But you can spend even a week, a 29 hour reading in the, that's a contract that exists in the, in Long Wharf is a Lort Theater League of Regional Theaters. And one of the things we use is a 29 hour reading. You can take 29 hours, work with a group of people that don't know each other. And at the end of 29 hours, come out with a fully formed ensemble telling a cohesive, beautiful, impactful story. It's like, what is the fastest way to get people to connect, to bond, to form a family that's one one word for it, right? And that is through the art and the practice and the rituals of theater making. And you can extend that to your audiences. You can extend that to to the families of those teens that are going to come together to witness the festival, yeah. to the friends of those teens. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't just live within. It is strong and it is it is super bonded within mm-hmm. those people created the art itself but that strength of that bond actually extends beyond mm. that that group that it that core nucleus and the circles ripple out and that i think is a is kind of the for me and like uh, not just for me right but talking in the eye i find that to be one of the most important parts of theater making whether you're doing one reading of something whether you're doing a weekend of performances the process of it mm. actually is so bonding. Mm-hmm. I keep coming to that word, but I think that's what makes people see each other and connect to each other. And if you're talking about a place like New Haven, where you're walking down the street and you've been through something with someone and you bump into someone at a coffee shop, like it makes places more familiar. It yes. makes places more like home. It enlivens your neighborhood in a way that other kind of gatherings that are not theatrical, that are not storytelling based, that are not based in artistic practices doesn't quite do that as quickly, I would say. It's like a shortcut (laughs) to (laughs) community bonding. And Cindy, I wonder if you will speak to this as a parent because I have a one-year-old and I don't know like how young is too young to (laughs) start getting into theater. Never too young. Never too young. So I have four children, have all been through uh, theater, starting with pre-teen theater in Fairfield, through teen theater, and then community theater. I've grown up with so many of these kids. I feel like they're my kids because I've seen them from the age of four through their adulthood. And, you know, even now there are a few of the kids that were in Fairfield Teen Theater that are now on Broadway. It's fantastic to see that. My oldest son is a dancer, and he's also very much an introvert. And I remember, you know, we would get calls saying, oh, we're doing this show. Could you get Josh to audition? And Josh would be on his computer saying, no, I don't want to. And as the mom, I was like, you have to. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of need to get out of the house. So, you know, go out, meet people, hang out with your friends. And, you know, as my children have grown, you know, I was always the one behind the scenes pushing them into you know, try this one, and don't worry if you don't get the lead, you know, it's just good to participate. And when they all grew up and were out of the house, and I'm sitting at home going, what do I do now? Right. My son said to me, it's your turn. You get on the stage. Yeah. So I, you know, I did get in a couple of shows, and and I think it's, it's an amazing 
amazing experience. And not only as a mom do you get to know the kids, but you get to know their families. Mm -hmm. You get to know the school system. You get to know, you know, the guy that builds the sets. And now I see them. Like I'll say, oh, he's doing the, the, the sets in Milford or he's in Fairfield or he's in New Haven. And it's kind of, like they said, it's, it's just a, a ripple effect. Mm. I love that it's your turn. Yeah. I yeah. love that. <laughs> Absolutely. You yeah. know, it is that thing. It can be the, it's the coming home. Right. You know, it's, that's, you know, being on stage or being in that group, that's home base. And it, it doesn't really matter, you know, because it is so immediate. It can be instantaneous, yeah. and so it creates home. I was struck by, there's this amazing, you said the quickest way, Rachel, and I, I'm struck there's an exercise when you're teaching clown, and it's, it's, the, it's called Ring of Fire, and mm. it's terrifying. It is the most, it's, it, it's just, oh, you live in dread of it, because what it, in its truest form, the clown in training goes into the center, and you're not allowed out of the circle till everyone laughs instantaneously oh, at the no. same time. And, and, oh, it's just, oh, it's, it's awful and it's wonderful all right. at the same time. But what the thing is, is that that's a thing that can't be, when the true, what is truly funny, what is truly human mm. shows up, it is instantaneous and it is everyone. And when that happens in an audience, yeah. that's the immediate bond, right? Because if I've laughed with you, I may not know you. I'm looking at Mike. I'm like, I may not know you, but if I've laughed at you, laughed with you, not at you, but yeah, I may not know you. It's easier to laugh at you. If I've laughed with you and if I've cried with you, then that's something like, I don't care where you live. I don't know anything about you, right. but I know we've shared something right. that's beyond. And, and sing with you. And I, sing. And right. sing. Mm -hmm. Sing is a big thing. You know, I was in Evita, you know, in the chorus, way back in the chorus. But <laughs> I remember sitting after rehearsal one day, and the cast was just sitting in, in the theater, and a spontaneous song broke out. I think they were singing something from Sister Act. But... Because everyone was singing together and taking parts and, and harmonizing, it just felt like such a ideal moment. It's, it's kind of like, you know, my idea of heaven is, you know, everybody singing together. And, mm -hmm. and that in itself was such a bonding experience. You know, it doesn't matter how the performance went that day. It didn't matter anything, but we were all together and just releasing this wonderful energy. That's part of my love of theater here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as both a parent and, and a teacher, you know, I look for these moments where I can get my students or my own kids to feel ownership. And it's through that contribution of singing along. And if they have their own harmony part, like they really feel like they've helped fill that out. And they're, that's the community instantly, like you said, they feel it already. And that's where they, they can then feel proud of it. And right. that pride is something they take with them. And if they take that to somewhere else other than theater, that's great. And if they continue with it with any other arts, that's great too. You made me think of the the word resilience is coming up for me too, mm. because when you're in these groups, if these are safe, you know, spaces to try new things, I was thinking of the ring of fire exercise, which I have done. Um, <laughs> and and, it, and it, when you are in a community of people that are, are willing to try, are willing to improvise, are willing to fail, are willing to pick yourself back up again. The theater has the capacity to, to really train your body in the art of resilience. And then you're creating a whole community of students that is a little bit more fearless, is a little bit more comfortable with making a mistake and trying, trying differently, trying again, 
And that reinforces the bravery. It, it reinforces yeah. this idea that you don't have to be apologetic. You can just give it another shot right. because that's what rehearsal is all about. And and that's what even live performance is all about. You never know what's going to happen. Things happen all the time, but even the worst mistake can actually lead to a more human outcome and a more exciting moment in live theater for the audience and the performers. So there's something about how forgiving it is as well. And then therefore how it builds community resilience as well, whether you're talking about an acting ensemble or audience and actor interaction. So that's what, what you just made me think of Mike. Totally. I mean, and those are such, I mean, I have seen this in the last, you know, I've only been teaching maybe 10, 12 years, but I've seen students get more and more unwilling to make mistakes, fearful of taking risks. And I think a lot of that has to do with constant sort of surveillance and social media and cancel culture, a lot of that sort of pressure to get everything perfect or it's, it's safer to say nothing. And what an antidote again to that. Just I all, This is going to be a weird analogy, but parenting has changed us a lot of ways that I think about things and, and reflect back on my own experiences, you know, growing up and also as a, an adult. But one thing, and I've never skateboarded. Well, actually, I've tried twice. Um, didn't go well. But I think about that as a really like kind of an analog thing to do where you fail constantly with other people. That's a very sort of supportive community. And I'm looking at this from the outside, but thinking as a parent, like wanting a kid who doesn't feel crushed by messing up at something, you know, and can do that with other people. And perhaps theater is less physically dangerous. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, no, this but you're is right. You fail again and again. You do. I, and I it's like, a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. I, had a, I had a friend. I, there's a story I, I used to, I would tell in my, my classes. I have a friend who was a stuntman in Las Vegas. And he was on the, the pirate ship. So his job, like, you know, the, the ship that sank mm. every hour <laughs> or every other hour, right? And so he would, like, you know, have to abandon ship and dive into the ocean. And, oh. and, and he said, you know, if I don't burst into flame at least once a week, I'm not doing my job. Huh. And he was speaking literally because he's a stuntman. But I always <laughs> thought that was a great analogy for theater. Like it's alive. That, that failure is not a, it's not an option. It's a necessity. Huh. And that if mm. we're not failing, we're not playing hard enough. Yeah. And sure. so this idea, I just love, I, I'd never, I don't know why I hadn't put that together. Rachel, it's brilliant. This idea that, that we're teaching resilience because we practice failure again and again and again. If we don't fail in theater, then we're not doing our job. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how we learn And it. That to take that out on a societal level is just beautiful. Wasn't it Samuel Beckett who said fail better? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Fail, fail again, fail better. Fail better. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's great. You know, we're coming to the to the end of our time, but it is so fun to to sit with theater people and talk about <laughs> because there is a willingness to sort of have a live experience. I've noticed like this conversation has felt very different. Uh you know, I've sat in we've I don't know, recorded seventy five episodes maybe with all different kinds of people and different kinds of experts on various things, many different realms. But this experience has felt very different, I think, because you all are able to be really present and also improvisational. And in, in but like there's there's a, a a facility with that that I don't think many people have in the same way who have, are not sort of part of the performing arts. It, I mean, it, it's evident. 
Hopefully we're not wild horses run amok. I can't measure it. <laughs> I was going to say, we're, the three of us, we're going to form a troop. So, right. <laughs> so I mean, also, like, maybe as a, as a, a point to end on, I mean, this is a, a challenging time for the arts in general and also a time of possibility. So I wonder if we could hear from, from each of you, maybe a, a challenge, a possibility, a request from community, maybe things you wish people knew or want to invite people into. Longworth is doing such innovative things, man. Yeah, tell us. Well, I love that you used the word possibility because this is the season that we're calling our theater possibility because it's our first season, you know, in various venues all throughout the region. And it's the first time for people to really, truly understand that world-class theater can exist anywhere. It can exist and it does exist everywhere <laughs> and it can exist in a living room and it can exist in the basement of a library and and all the other places that we're going to be. And the possibilities truly are endless. So but the way you actually can experience them is by showing up. Right. And we we need we all need people to show up to get come in your PJs. I don't you know, like I understand we're all very comfortable on our couches as I am. And I would say come as you are and you'll you'll feel you'll just be glad that you did that you made that mm -hmm. that extra effort to gather mm -hmm. so that's my kind of plea to people is that we it is a theater of possibility and and we are we are experimenting but also bringing the familiar to you in in beautiful new ways that hopefully resonate deeply and so so join come join us longwharf.org <laughs> well done yes very nice there you go at least i think that's our website <laughs> yeah taking a uh, we're taking a little page from longworth um elm shakespeare is we are coming into it's the year it's our 29th season so we're really oh, wow. getting ready for our 30th and there is change within the organization and it is funny because we are a beloved tradition, mm -hmm. but I think that we are often associated only with Shakespeare in the Park. And we haven't been just Shakespeare in the Park for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. We are in the community all over working with, you know, uh, over a thousand students wow. a year. We're at SESU in partnership. And now we're taking that next step that we've got with the youth festival so that we want every student in New Haven to have the opportunity to have a meaningful transformational experience mm -hmm. with this poetry. We are adding, going back, uh, we started in the pandemic, uh, Building a Brave New Theater, which is our, an event series that is about holding space and giving voice to innovative and new and often marginalized artists and how Shakespeare can really serve this century. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have four new events that now some of them live and some of them online, but um, partnering with organizations throughout the city. So we, we too are really in a growth, growth phase, mm -hmm. um, doing much, much more out in the community in lots of different venues. And I would echo Rachel that come, come and mm -hmm. see and, and, and be interested in what is the next, what is possible for you, for the community, for the organizations. So elmshakespeare.org. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, so well. Uh, wow. And uh, so from an educational standpoint, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, we, 
We serve kind of two functions. Uh, I mean, one, we're, we're introducing the possibilities of being an artist to students who have may not have ever heard that that is a possibility for them. Right. So diversifying the future of our artistry is kind of where we're coming from. Mm. And on the other hand, also training those that know this is what I want to do uh, to be able to get that next position there mm. um, and give them that ownership and, and let them get into the world. So, yeah, uh, SESU Theater at uh, Southern Connecticut State University. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you do that, you get to work with me and Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I that's did. one of the great things about all these partnerships. It's actually Absolutely. exposing our students to, to more. It's not just one way. We've been dealing with this, this kind of nostalgic ritual of the regional theater yeah. that's only existed for 60 years out of the thousands that theater's been around. Mm. Yeah. yeah, some people are so attached to that. You know, Long Wharf's proven you don't need that model. Mm. to yeah. continue this work. So that's, we're trying to, you know, change the world from the inside out. <laughs> Love it. I mean, it just like this conversation is such a reminder to me about truly the biological function of the arts and how much healing we need in the world today. And also recovering still from the pandemic in terms of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a community member. And I'm just so delighted that you all joined us today, that you're a part of our communities here. Thank you for what you do for our, our students and our university. Can't imagine, you know, a university without a robust theater. Thank you for saying that. There you're are some welcome. universities who are going through some issues with that. Of right course now. there are. Of course there are. But such a, a profound contribution. And I'm like, I'm really excited about being a theater dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to just plug Mike and what SSU yeah, please do, Theater please do. is doing because it is a it is a rare, unique model. And and the fact that you are gathering theater companies, the symphony, like all sorts of community organizations are finding a home at Southern Connecticut State University. And it is an innovative model of resource sharing and knowledge sharing that's going to serve our next generation. And I just cannot applaud enough. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving us homes. Thank you for <laughs> seeing into the future. And, and I think that together we do make... The, the university stronger and uh, serve the students. So, yet go, Mike. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you so much. And Cindy, thank you for, for organizing this episode. Dreams come true. Dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much. We will see you. Take thank care. You. Thank you. Thank you.